0: Welcome back everyone. Do stock valuations matter? What a ridiculous question to ask. Of course they matter. Buying Apple at $150 is much different than buying Apple at $180. For one, as a dividend investor, you're going to lock in a much different dividend yield. And when it comes time to sell your position 5, 10, or 50 years from now, you're going to see a larger profit if you purchase your shares for $150 than $180. Clearly valuations matter, but how much do they really matter? And is that even something that can be measured? The answer is yes. Of course we can measure the impact of purchasing a stock at various valuations, because we have plenty of historical data available to us. Today I'm going to tackle this question. How much do valuations really matter, and I think you'll be surprised with the answer. I'm going to show you real examples. We will listen to Terry Smith of Fundsmith share his thoughts on the topic, and we're going to learn about something that may be far more important than valuation when it comes to achieving great long-term results. Let's begin with a quote from Charlie Munger all the way back from 1994. Mr. Munger said, Over the long term, it's hard for a stock to earn a much better return than the business which underlies it earns. If the business earns 6% on capital over 40 years, and you hold it for that 40 years, you're not going to make much different than a 6% return. Here's the important part, even if you originally buy it at a huge discount. Conversely, if a business earns 18% on capital over 20 or 30 years, even if you pay an expensive looking price, you'll end up with one hell of a result. What Charlie Munger is saying here is that over a long period of time, buying a business at a discount or premium does not have a major impact on your return. What determines your return is the rate of return that business is able to generate on its capital during the span of time you own it. This wasn't speculation from Mr. Munger. He was stating something that could be mathematically measured over time. Let's listen to Terry Smith explain how this works using an actual example.
1: All right, here's two companies. And your investing career, 40 years, seems like a long time, but actually most of us, given our lifespan now, are going to be investors for much longer than 40 years. Actually, even if we start in our 30s, say, we're going to be investors for much longer than that. Um, And these two companies are, you've got a very simple choice. You've just got to own company A or company B for the 40 years. That's all it is. That's all you require. Company A has a return on capital employed of 20% and B has one of 10%. To make this simple in terms of mental arithmetic, so you don't have to do complex mental arithmetic, neither company pays a dividend, so 100% of their post-tax returns are invested in their business, and they both have the same tax rate. So I hope, having uh, board for Britain on return on capital employed for the last 20 minutes or so, I could convince you that A might be the better investment to select. However, if only life were that simple. On the day when you go to buy them, they are differently rated. A is trading on four times book value on the stock market, B is only two times book value. For those of you who are not analysts, book value is the capital, take it as the capital employed there. So for every pound of capital employed in this lovely 20% earning company, you've got to pay four in share price terms. Whereas unsurprisingly, with this one only makes 10%, you've only got to pay two. Bit trickier, isn't it? Which one do you want now? It gets worse. When you come to sell them 40 years later, because you want to invest in bonds and lose money, This one has halved in valuation. I've no idea why it's occurred. Um, It's out of fashion. Uh, Your timing is bad. For whatever reason, just take my word for it, it's happened. It's gone from four pounds for every pound of book value to two pounds. This one, conversely, is in fashion at the moment. It's doubled its valuation. Now, which one do you want to own? Hmm? It's still A. Now, believe it or not, I and mean, we can send you the spreadsheet for anybody who wants this, if you ask us afterwards, you've actually got enough information here in, not for the gobbledygook that I talk about, return on capital employed, price of the book. You've got all the data there, where if we tell you the share price at the outset, we can tell you what you would have gained at the end and what the compound return, but you've got everything you need there in those few numbers. Your terrible timing here, but in this very good company, would have cut your share price, compound annual growth rate, to 18%. You'd have taken 2% off from what Charlie Munger tells you is the underlying return this one, your brilliance, or luck, I don't know which it is, would have got the return up to a whole 12%. Over the long term, it's the return that the company makes on the capital it reinvests, which will determine your outcome, not whether you buy it cheap and sell it expensive or the other way around.
0: So as we were able to see from the example, it was the rate of return a company was able to generate on their capital employed that had the largest impact on the long-term compounded return of owning the business, and not the premium or discount we initially paid. Company B that traded for 2 times its book value appeared like a much better deal than company A that traded for 4 times its book value. Company B looked much cheaper and perhaps like a more enticing business to invest in. But even buying it at a discount and selling it at a premium wasn't as rewarding as buying company A at a premium and selling it at a discount. This is pretty simple to understand, but it's much more difficult to follow. As investors, we let the market or the news dictate to us what an acceptable price to pay for a specific business. We have target prices, fair valuations, and we also run our own valuation models that tell us what a reasonable price may be. And oftentimes, this is the first thing we do when looking at a new investment opportunity. Because if the price doesn't make sense, you shouldn't be wasting your time looking into the underlying business. I personally think an investor would be better off by reversing this process. First find a business that you like, and one that you have confidence will continue to grow in the future. Then, once you determine you would like to own this business, should you start figuring out what price you are willing to pay and I would urge you to keep your valuations flexible and not focus on a hard limit price that you aren't willing to cross. As Warren Buffett once said, it's far better to buy a great business at a fair price than to buy a fair business at a great price. It can be very difficult to figure out what a fair price should be for any given business, and it isn't until years or decades in the future that we can definitively say what a fair price 5 or 10 years ago actually was. Let's listen to another example from Terry Smith about a real stock this time, that can help us see that a business that may appear expensive today could turn out to actually be a bargain despite having a premium price tag. The example is a little dated, but the point is nevertheless still valid.
1: Um, Here's a real company to illustrate that. This is a company that you've heard of, I already imagine. I would be fairly confident you've used its products. Um, It's a consumer products company. These are three years actual numbers. Don't bother looking at them all. I'll just pick out a few. Here's three years. You can see its sales went from $15 billion to $17, nearly $18 to $19 billion. And its uh, net profit, which is somewhere in net income, uh, where are we did uh, a net income, went from 900 million dollars to 1.1 billion dollars. It's growing at about eight percent per annum. Uh, these are not atypical years. I't put 20 years up there only because it would be a crowded slide. They're very typical of how this company performs to this day. It continues to perform a bit like this, um, and it did before. Um, what would you be prepared to pay for this company? So now we get back to the cheap you know, uh, or expensive. So never mind per share, we'll just do it for the whole company. So if it makes $1.1 billion in net income, would you pay a PE, a price earnings ratio of 10? So you buy, could I get you all to bound together with me tonight, and we'll go and buy this company for $11 billion? Now I reckon you would, I, you, you, I might be able to get you in for that one, yeah? How about getting you to pay 20 times earnings? so we pay $22 billion, hmm, I think now we just start hearing people go, well it's a bit expensive, isn't it? Yeah, hmm. how about 30 times, 32? not one of you would come with me. Mark might, because he knows the example. The rest of you, I've got no confidence at all that I can get you to come along. Uh, 40 times, you would be trying to get, find, a few, find a short seller uh, for the company, basically, at that point, in the proceedings. Right? Now, this is a company called PepsiCo. And I didn't actually lie to you on the previous slide, because I'm not like that, but I did do something slightly misleading. You see, the years that I put up, I labeled 2014, 15, and 16. And actually, they're not. They are actually 1989, 1991. Um, so they're 25 years ago. So I did it to you because we can now tell what happened with our decision that I was trying to get you to make with me. So let's look what happened fundamentally. Uh, the $19 billion of sales became $62 billion in the intervening years because we've got the 2016 results here. We can tell you what happened. Yeah? Um, the $1.1 billion of, um, of profits became $6.6 billion of profits. So it went up six times. The market value went from $27 billion to $146 billion. You'll get told, by the way, in relation to our strategy, that these companies are more expensive than they've ever been. I'll come back to that perhaps a bit later. No, they're not. Actually, this company is much more lowly rated now than it was back then. So 22 times earnings versus 25. Okay, how did we get on? Well, if we bought the company for 10 times, we'd have made 14.3% per annum return, because we can tell you what happened to the share price now over the 25 years. If I got you to pay 20 times, we'd have made 11.1%. If I got you to pay 30 times, remember none of you. I didn't hear any protests. Yeah, I'd be in, Terry. I didn't hear any of that. We'd be on 9.3%, okay? 40 40 times 8.1%. The S&P 500 for the same period with dividends reinvested was 9.1%. This is the toughest index in the world for fund managers to even equal, let alone beat. We could have paid... 32 times earnings with PepsiCo, and equaled an index that most fund managers find it possible to be. Human beings are really bad at working out the effect of differential compound growth rates over long periods of time. We don't realize quite what happens when companies compound their earnings in the way that these companies compound. We're very, very bad at judging the outcome. We could have paid 32 times earnings for PepsiCo back there at 1991 and, and equaled the index. We could have paid 30 times and beaten the index.
0: It's interesting to see examples like this that can help us gauge how we view valuations, specifically using price-to-earnings multiples. In the example, buying Pepsi at a 10 times PE multiple appeared like a deal. At a 20 times PE multiple, it may have appeared slightly overvalued, given that the long-term average PE multiple of the S&P 500 is around 15. So purchasing Pepsi at 20 times earnings would appear to be a 25% premium to the long-term market average valuation. At a 30 times multiple, you'd essentially be paying twice the market average PE ratio. I think many of us would have passed on purchasing Pepsi at that level. But as it turned out, even at a 30 times PE multiple, Pepsi would have given us a better long-term return than the S&P between 1991 and 2016. What we can take away from this is that what you invest in matters more than how much you pay for it. I'm not saying you should completely throw valuation models out the window. If you can invest in a great business at a fair or discounted price, it's obviously much better than paying a premium. I think the bigger point here is that you should never settle for a mediocre or poor company no matter how great the valuation looks, especially if your intention is to own that business for a long time. I liked Terry's example so much, I wanted to test it for myself, so I looked at the 20-year history of Apple and the price to earnings multiple it traded for. Between 2004 and early June of 2023, Apple traded for a P.E. ratio between 8.7 and 122, a pretty wide range. The average P.E. ratio clocked in at 22.37, which I found surprisingly low for a company that has a much better compounded growth rate than the S&P 500. Apple also has a very high return on capital employed, which is a simple metric we can calculate using two financial statements. Return on capital employed is simply earnings before interest and taxes, divided by total assets less current liabilities. Apple's trailing 12-month return on capital employed is a very high 52.95%. In 2022, it was 60.09% and 48.31% in 2021. Between 2013 and 2020, the ROCE varied between a low of 22% and a high of 34%, with the average being about 28.5%. The past few years with a much higher ROCE make Apple appear even more attractive today than it did a few years ago. In 2013, Apple traded for a P.E. ratio between 9.82 and 14.34, based on daily market close prices. If you purchased a share at the high end, near the 14.34 P.E. multiple you would see a compounded price return of a little more than 24% through today. This doesn't factor in dividends Apple would have paid during the last 10 years, or the impact of reinvesting those dividends. Now if you purchased Apple at the low end, near the 9.82% P multiple, you would see a compounded price return of a little more than 29%, again without dividends. And the average compounded price return was 26.65%. So in hindsight, whether you purchased Apple at its highest or lowest valuation in 2013, you would still see an excellent long-term compounded growth rate through today primarily because the business was able to grow its capital at a very high rate during this decade. Buying the stock at lower valuations generated better returns, but the margin of difference between the best and worst day did not have a major impact on the long-term compounded return, with even the worst return being significantly better than the broad stock market would have paid you. Matter of fact, we could have paid a 20 times PE multiple in 2013 and still seen a 20% plus compounded return. The S&P 500 total return for the same period of time was 13.89%, inclusive of dividends and dividend reinvestment. This means that we could have paid up to 34 times earnings for Apple and still outperformed the S&P 500. Again, I'm not factoring in dividends for Apple, so we could have likely paid an even higher multiple and still bested the S&P. Today Apple trades for a P.E. multiple of around 30, which may appear high based on its 20-year P.E. history. If you recall, the long-term 20-year average P.E. ratio is 22.37. But data tells us that if Apple can continue to generate a 20-30% ROCE, it may still be a smart investment today even at its above average P.E. ratio. I have no idea what growth rate Apple will achieve in the next 5 days or 50 years, but the company has a very wide moat around their product lines and an ecosystem with a large and loyal customer base that makes me think they can continue to generate a high return on their capital for many more years. Buying Apple 6 months ago for a 20 times P.E. multiple sounded like a bargain today. But if a decade from now, purchasing shares at a 30 times multiple will still generate 20% plus compounded returns, we will say that buying at any price in 2023 would have been a smart decision. I'm not advocating that you buy Apple at its current price. I'm simply trying to give you some context to think about so that you can make a more informed decision. We've listened to Terry Smith today, but you may not be familiar with who he is. So let's briefly talk about him and his investment fund. Terry Smith is a legendary quality investor from the UK, sometimes dubbed the Warren Buffett of Britain. He runs a hedge fund called Fundsmith since about 2010, and has been continuously outperforming the market with a fairly simple strategy. His fund is up 517% since inception through month-end May 2023, compared to a return of 257.8% for the MSCI World Equity Index. On an annualized basis, Fundsmith is achieving a 15.6% rate of return, while the MSCI World Index has an annualized rate of return of just 11.1%. For perspective, the S&P, during approximately the same period of time, has achieved a 12.65% annualized rate of return, which means that Fundsmith is still comfortably outpacing the S&P 500. From a recent fact sheet, we can sum up Fundsmith's six criteria for the type of businesses they like to invest in. They are high-quality businesses that can sustain a high return on operating capital employed, businesses whose advantages are difficult to replicate, businesses which do not require significant leverage to generate returns, Businesses with a high degree of certainty of growth from reinvestment of their cash flows at high rates of return. Businesses that are resilient to change, particularly technological innovation. And businesses whose valuation is considered by the company to be attractive. I think these are excellent rules we can borrow and apply to our own investing strategies. After reflecting on this content for a while, I have come to find that from my own personal experience, some of the best individual returns in my portfolio did not come from the companies I bought because I thought they were a bargain, but instead from the ones that generated higher returns on capital since my purchase, regardless of how much I initially paid for them. I hope you found this content insightful.